Today's guest promises to be one of the most riveting guests we have had. It was six years ago. The woman you're about to hear from dodged machine gun fire as she carried her three children while pregnant with a fourth across the Syrian border into Turkey. Her husband, now the top-ranking American commander in ISIS, paid a human trafficker to take his family to a bus stop. From there, they were on their own. This story is very complicated. This mother of four small children was radicalized at a very young age. She believed in jihad in the name of Allah, and it was her mission. Her husband was an American from Texas. He was her partner in terror, and they traveled the world hoping to recruit radicals while they raised their sons at the same time to be holy warriors. But something changed because while living here in America, he went to prison and a window opened. Today's podcast asks several questions and attempts to have them answered. What drives a young, intelligent, beautiful person to become radicalized? And if it does happen, is it possible for that person to de-radicalize themselves and seek redemption? This story is going to attempt to answer these questions. It's not only a literal journey spanning multiple countries, multiple war zones, time zones, but it is also an internal journey of the mind and the heart as she grapples with breaking free of her radical ideology and extremist husband. Today, she works with organizations to help counter violent extremists. She uses her past experience to try to de-radicalize those that have become radicals. She works in prisons. She works with U.S. law enforcement. Today's episode, The Islamic Terrorist's Wife. So I want to get into your story from the, really the beginning. But I have to address the elephant in the room first. There are these ISIS wives, if you will, that we have seen that are trying to get back into their own country and be normalized. And I haven't believed any of them. I believe you. Um, but I haven't believed any of them. Why should anyone believe you i mean that's your your journey is night and day why should they believe me yeah um i think i mean i think i'm an open book i definitely am and the fact that i do criticize now see it's it's a long story but originally like i started off being a teenager at 16 who was very who was bullied at high school and I went through a mental breakdown with no therapy or counseling available to me and then I turned to religion so but, so let's yeah. so then so because if, if I want to go through your story and maybe the way to believe you is just hear your whole story right. so so let's let's instead of giving a Real quick recap. Let's start at the beginning. Tanya, you were born in Great Britain. Yes. You were born 
and lived in a family. Tell me about your family, mom and dad. Um, yeah, so I come from a Bangladeshi British family. My grandfather moved to the UK in 1945. Then he bought his my mother over 10 years later. Um, they weren't my parents and then my my dad came in the 70s married my mom for a passport that's that's pretty normal <laughs> it's pretty really? acceptable in a muslim culture um and and they, they weren't religious but what happened to me as a teenager was i had from the results of being bullied at high school i ended up turning to religion to cope and the only religion accessible to me at the time was Islam. Okay, so wait. Mom and dad, not religion. Kind religious. of, culturally religious. Forced what us, does that mean, culturally Like, religious? they would force us to read the Quran two hours every day in a language we don't understand. It's like Catholics reading Latin and not knowing a word that they're saying. Okay. And the way they could control us was teaching us they they didn't want us to be too westernized because that was forbidden in islam it was it, it would insult their culture it would be like things like wearing makeup wearing heels wearing jeans we would be slut shamed mm. but naturally we wanted to be integrated but our parents were the obstacle was your mom was your mom um did she buy into that was she more of a of a mom or a wife of somebody that was kind of keeping her under the thumb or no. what was the problem was I think I'm going to be really candid here, but my mom always wanted um, a husband who would be a patriarch and a provider, the breadwinner, but she had to take on that role because my dad was a bit of a troublemaker and got himself in a lot of trouble. I didn't grow up having a lot of respect for him. And I always heard my mom complaining that he's not a good father, like he's not a good provider. Or And so I, I longed for patriarchy. I longed to have that male role model who would, mm. you know, protect the family, take care of the family. Um, and I didn't have that, and I was missing in my life. Uh, I also had a lot of issues with my dad because he he wasn't the most uh, law-abiding human being and got himself into trouble, my mom. So th there was a lot of problems at home, and it always stems from the home at the mm -hmm. beginning, especially with values. I wasn't taught values like human rights, um, the law of the land, respect the law of the land. It was like haram halal. You are controlled, you can't integrate, you can't be Western, that's satanic. Um, you've got to be, you know, sh you've got to worry about shame. You can't date boys. You can't be like a normal Western girl growing up and learn how to have healthy relationships. You've got to have arranged marriages and things like that. So, you know, I had this conflict. And then after having a, a and it's really embarrassing for me to say, but I, I was practically schizophrenic the age of 16 uh, because I was so lonely and I'd been chased out one town, um, Harrow, which is northwest of London. 
And then I had I moved to East London. What do you mean you were chased out of? Uh, well, they were like attacking me if I came outside my house. And when I had a job, I was working in a clothes store, and they would come harass me. It was Who would? Um, girls from my high school, and it, it became too much that what, I was, was unsafe. Wait, was it a was it a color thing? A oh no, religion thing. It was. Just, they just didn't like you. Bullies. What? Yeah. Um. They were the cool girls that I fell. The cool girls at school who were popular, and I fell out with them because. Wow. And it was over silly things. I was dating a boy that they didn't like me dating, and it just so happened that the boy I was dating, he was a Sikh nationalist, and I know that's not too commonly known in America, mm-hmm. but. Um, they hate Muslims and they say that they, they grow their hair uh-huh. and they grow turbans and they say they're only going to cut their hair once they've killed off every Muslim, which is impossible. So what happens is that these boy, Sikh boys mm. will intentionally date Muslim girls to abuse them. And so I was in an abusive relationship from a very young age, from, from 15 to 18. And my dad wasn't present because my dad was actually running away from the law because he had been molesting a 12-year-old. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, it, it, it's so bad. It just, like, it's really hard, I think, for any girl to grow up. We long to have a close relationship with our father. Mm-hmm. There was nothing I could respect about him. And so also to, to move on further, I wasn't allowed to leave home unless I was married. So it wasn't like go to college, do well, and then you can get married and live freely. It was like, well, once you get married to a guy, you're not our problem anymore. So I I understood that was the dynamics. And I really needed to leave that toxic environment of my family. Um, I was also, so once I left Harrow, which is northwest of London, I moved to Essex, East London, Barking. And Barking was a breeding ground for terrorism. If, um, like, a lot of the terrorists who went driving their vans into people on the London Bridge and stabbings, they came from Barking. So once I was in Barking, you know, I I was searching for an identity, and I didn't know what to do. And um, and these conservative Muslim girls that I was around now in this working class area. So there were two groups. There were the Muslims who were very conservative Muslims, traditionalists, and then the, uh, the English people were more on the BNP side. What's and the, BNP? Uh, the British National Party. Okay, okay. And then they evolved into the EDL. Which is? is um, something, uh, English Defence League. Okay. So they were white nationalists. Perfect. And it's a working class neighborhood, so everybody was like moving away from the center and becoming very tribal. Mm-hmm. And so I had, I, I, you know, I wasn't the brightest girl. I was a bit of a follower. I, I wanted to follow. I wanted religion. I wanted God to love me. So, you know, there was no movement where nuns were revolting and like bombing uh, post post boxes and right, things like that. I would right. have loved to have joined that, but instead it was um, <laughs> there was the Muslim. The Muslims were like aggravated. They had all these grievances. And my cousin, Nabila Chowdhury, I, I idolized her. And she was the first person in my family to go to Oxford University. She was a normal, beautiful girl. I just adored her. She went to Oxford and she became radicalized. And she came out even worse. It's unbelievable. You're like, just like how the universities in England were infiltrated by 
Islamic movements, the, the political Islam. And I was a few years younger than her, and I was like, I knew my family adored her, and I wanted to be like her. So she, at the age of 17, she taught me about the caliphate. So this is the first time I heard about the caliphate. Mm. Never even knew about political Islam. Um, September 11th happened, and that was a huge turning point in my life. I was distraught. I didn't want to believe that Muslims did it. I also didn't believe Muslims were intelligent enough to to, to do something oh, like that. Wow. Right? You know, because like you just think of Muslims as like light years behind Judeo Christian communities. They wow. they really are. You know, like we can go into that further about how they kill apostates and things. It's mm-hmm. like those were rulings that were outdated two thousand years ago by Judaism and still go continue today. Right. But I didn't know any better, and I really was desperate to feel a belonging because I felt rejected by my family, I felt rejected by society. And I was a pretty girl, but I didn't know how to handle the catcalling that I got when I was a teenager. And most of the time, I was blamed for it. I was blamed for the way I look. Right. And you're so you're a, and you're living in a society that slut shames. Exactly. Got it. So the solution was you cover up because it's your fault. You shouldn't be tempting men. Oh, my God. It wasn't men should just control themselves. Right. right? Um, and so I, I and I, I felt like God didn't like me uh, childish. And I was like and I was desperate for God. To be protected by God. Because you had no one else in your no life. No one else. No father figure to protect me. I had an abusive boyfriend. And only Islam actually made me separate from him. Um, and Because of the abuse or because he was a Sikh? Uh, both. Okay. <laughs> and he wasn't healthy. He, yeah. he, he abused me only because I was a Muslim. So there's all this, like, within the Indian subcontinent communities, Hindus, Muslims, um, Christians, and Muslims, none of them get along. There's no, like, Mm -hmm. shared values. Mm -hmm. And and plus, they're so traumatized from the separation of India and Pakistan during, you know, after the British left, and there was a lot of trauma, and Mm -hmm. our parents, you know, they didn't get therapy, and... They weren't pacifists. They didn't understand children have human rights. They were abusive. They were all these problems. Plus, they got um, a lot of their like rulings from Islam, which says things like, "If your child doesn't pray at seven, beat them," and it was very draconian, like very violent. So, you know, this was the environment that I grew up in, and it wasn't until later that I realized that if you keep this cycle of violence and hate. That's it's just continue. I didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, so you're in your your cousin. Yeah, my cousin is in Oxford. She's yeah, been she radicalized, yep. and September 11th happens. Yes. And you see Osama bin Laden. Well, I was. I came home from school. I, I was studying politics, government politics, law, sociology, psychology at my A levels. And so I was already very politically driven and I came home, switched on from school and I switched on the news and I saw what happened. And I was like, I was devastated. I was like, this is horrible. This is inhumane. 
I went to school the next day and I was in my government and politics class and I sat next to my best friend who was a Pakistani girl. Um, and I, asked, I said, wasn't it terrible what happened? And they're saying Muslims. Why do they always blame the Muslims? <laughs> and, <laughs> and she said to me, well, was it so terrible? Was it so bad? And I was like, oh, maybe she didn't understand what I just said. I was in shock by her response. So I, I, I tried to reword it. And she said, okay, come home after school and my parents will tell you all about it. So that's how it began, the radicalization, not only from my cousin, but from my school friends. And it's a new area. And Barking, Essex, where I come from, is renowned for breeding terrorists. You know, what did the parents say to you? My parents didn't. No, no, no. Oh, no. Her, parents. her parents. Oh, her parents told me it's uh, an eye for an eye, life for a life. America has been intervening in the in Muslim countries for far too long. They attacked. Uh, they they use like uh, propaganda from Osama bin Laden that I didn't wasn't familiar with, but they said something like America intervened with the war in Lebanon and they killed thousands of people. So. You know, a life for a life. We they kill us, mm-hmm. we kill them. And I I can't say that I was I wasn't a healthy minded person. Mm-hmm. I was a follower. I was I was looking for leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, oh, I get that. Yeah, I I understand because my ex boyfriend used to beat me up for being a Muslim, and I, even though I told him I'm I'm not really a Muslim, I don't care about the religion, but. It's like it ended up where I just ended when when people are like confronted about their identity and they don't know what their identity is, they end up just like going backwards. And I, so I was I was like, OK, no one accepts me as an Eng- I'm not English. I'm British, but I'm not English. So and my roots are not deep enough. Um, what does that mean? In America, you're an American. Yes. Especially you're born here. But even if you come here and you take the citizenship test, you're an American, yeah. not and, in England. And in America, everybody has ancestors that were immigrants. Even the natives were immigrants. Mm. They came from Asia. But it's not quite like that in England. There's a lot of xenophobia. And the Muslim community wasn't helping because they weren't integrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I see from both perspectives. Right, right, right. Um, so... I um, ended up just like, I really just like, I had this reputation where I had a boyfriend and my family were not happy with it. And I was like, okay, I've got to turn my life around. I've got to be a good person. I Like, I have to be the equivalent of a nun, but the Muslim version. So I was like, I'm going to be a good Muslim girl. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to hear and obey. I'm going to find a Muslim husband and get away from this country that doesn't accept me. Okay, so it's not at this point that you are, this is a big turning point in your life, yeah. right? This is the first real turning point to where you're, you're seeing, okay, I can build a better life. And it's not about killing people or anything else. It's just about listening and obeying and putting these principles into play in your life for a better life. Yeah, and because I thought God would protect me from being unlucky. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I learned that I, I define my future. I, def- I, I determine my fate, not God. But I didn't know that at the time. Uh, I mar- uh, so my friends were getting married very young. 
and I was kind of just following their footsteps. And um, so going back to my high school, I, I came from West London and I moved to East London and it was a big culture shock. I spoke differently. I walked differently. I talked differently from them. They had a very strong Essex accent. I had a Northern accent. Um, I had boyfriends. I was like, for the, and then I, I had peer pressure. Like, you can't be this. It's not Islamic. Are you ashamed of your roots? So mm. I felt the pressure. And being the weak-minded airhead that I was, and I'm very ashamed. <laughs> I, I really was. I... I was, we all made mistakes and well, we were all stupid when we were young. Also, I was the fourth daughter, so I had three older sisters, and I was used to just following their, following, being a follower. Because my parents weren't, they were busy working. My sisters practically look after me. And, and as girls, we weren't wanted. So as the fourth unwanted daughter. And my parents made it very clear to me that they didn't want me. So my education was not a priority. I could, they didn't care if I went to school as long as the house was clean. So I became the cleaner and the servant. We had to clip my dad's toenails, take, take his socks off after work. I can't even believe that I had to do that back then. But so, and then also knowing things like a girl is worth half of a boy. When we're born, we have this sacrificial ceremony where we kill goats. It's so sad. But, uh, you know, goats or lambs or whatever. And a girl gets one animal, one, one animal sacrificed, but a boy gets two. So a girl's worth half of a boy. And our testimony is worth half of a man. So if we're in court, you need two women witnesses is equivalent to one man. Because our deficiency in our mind. How did you not, how did you, how were you raised in England, which doesn't have that system, and not understand, not see the two and go, this one's better than that one? How, how did you not see that? See, at the time, I, because of my Muslim uprising, I wasn't allowed to drink, I wasn't allowed to party, I wasn't allowed to have relationships with boys. And um, so you just we isolated. were just told, yeah, isolated and told that that's all evil and you're evil if you do it. And, and, and this suspicion that Satan is around completely possessing us. Also, after the bullying, I turned to my religion because I, I felt so unsafe that I felt like only God can protect me. So I, I, I went into, I, I delved into Islamic research not with a healthy mind, mm -hmm. uh, feeling like I brought it on myself because I hadn't been a good Muslim. Mm. Before, before the bullying, I couldn't care less about my religion. I didn't even want to be a Muslim. I was so embarrassed of being a Muslim, I wouldn't even tell people. But like the backlash between like the BNP and the EDL and then against the Muslim community, I saw this with my family even. They became more and more religious after September 11th, that's when I, it's like everyone became very tribal. Um, and so that's where it stemmed. I, and I wasn't allowed to leave home. My, my family dynamics were toxic. Like I said, my dad was a huge problem. Um, and my mom was a problem. She was very abusive and 
I need to get away from her because she was a bully. Um, and so I knew the only way I could get out was to get married. So while I was at a march uh, for Stop the War in Iraq, march in London, it was like a million-man march. Mm -hmm. It was very historical. Um, some Muslim guys came up to me with a piece of paper saying www.muslimmatrimony.com. And I just looked at it, and I was like, they saw me with a hijab. And I was like, okay, fine. I, I realized that the only way I can get away from my family is if I get married. Um, kind of like a mail-order bride. <laughs> I'm not proud of, but that pretty much was how I became. I met John Georgilis online. And John, American. an American who came from a military family. His dad was a general in the Air Force. A doctor so he 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 lived the life that I wish I had been born into um, you know who doesn't want to be a white American upper middle class family with a great legacy but I met him and we had a lot in common that we had problems with our in our homes with our fathers and felt rejected by society, but we were most welcomed by the Muslim community because the Muslim community will embrace everyone, anyone. You can be the most retarded, uh, anyone, like psychopath, murderous person. You're welcome as long as you come in and join the group because mm -hmm. they need everybody. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's almost like a gang culture. But it gave me some belonging, which I didn't have anywhere else. Um, and so it, that was my initial stage with, with John. in England. Yeah. yeah. And so when you met him online, how did that transpire? What attracted you to him? What okay. did he promise? What Very superficial. And again, in Islam, you can marry people for four reasons. You can marry a man for his wealth, for his status for his piety or his looks. I went for status <laughs> and I for? went because his parents came from a good family. And I, like I said, I wished I had come from that kind of background. Like when I was a child, yeah. I used to wish, like I wish I could be adopted by a white family in a middle class <laughs> I get away from my parents. Wow. But it's sad to think like that, you know, because really I, I felt so rejected from the age of five. I was running away from home. Um, and John, uh, I don't know exactly why, uh, John's dad was absent in his life. His dad worked really hard as a doctor and in the military, so he didn't spend much time with his son. But when John's dad did spend time with John, my ex-husband, there wasn't a good relationship. John didn't meet up to Tim's mm -hmm. expectations. Mm -hmm. Tim is tall, he was athletic, he played, um, he played football at West Point. You know, he, he had achieved so much. But John, on the other hand, had a drug addiction at the age of 11. Oh, my. Yeah. And, um, and it never really got dealt with. He, he didn't go to therapy. He didn't get counseling. He should have probably gone to a military camp or some boot camp or something. Mm -hmm. But none of that happened, and it, his rebellion against his parents just it got out of hand. And it, um, so with John, 
I'm, I'm going off a bit. No, 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 that's yeah. fine. So, like, after September 11th, um, you know, so I'll go back to my story and then I'll explain what happened to John. Um, after September 11th, I went to school. I was in my politics class and I said to my friend, who was a Pakistani girl, she's now graduated from Queen Mary's University and is a lawyer. But I spoke to her and I said, wasn't it terrible what happened? And I think it's, they think it's Muslims and... And she was like, well, was it so bad? You don't think they deserved it? And I was like, and I was like, hang on, let me ask you that again, because I didn't think she understood my, what I was. She said, come home after school and talk to my parents. And they'll, they'll, they'll explain to you the history of the Soviet Union and how these Mujahideen, these glorious Mujahideen, had defeated communism, and they are heroes. The problem is, is those so-called warrior heroes sought asylum in England and they got asylum and they influenced us and they influenced like a lot of groups the Hizbat Tahrir which is a band group in England they were calling for a caliphate which my cousin had learned from in Oxford and she taught me about and then there was another group called Al Mahajroon by Omar Bakri um, they're banned now and they wanted to make England a Islamic state which was a complete joke but uh, so I wasn't really with any of them, but I, I had lots of friends and they were all from different groups who all supported jihad in different ways. Hizbat Tahrir HT, they, were said, they said they were nonviolent, but only up until a certain time. Mm-hmm. They're like, we don't do jihad now, we'll do it later. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the Sufis. They're like, now is not the time to fight. We'll fight at the end of days when Christ returns to Damascus and will kill off all the Jews. And I was like, whoa, okay. And I'd never met a Jewish person. So I was mm. like, okay, the only, the only references I have to Jewish people are from the Quran. And as far as I know, God curses them. God hates them. Uh, yeah, all, this, all this stuff that is the most anti-Semitic book. I mean, if there's any book full of hate, hate speech, it's the Quran. And that's where I learned it from. I didn't have to learn it from any group. You just have to read any translation, and it's there. The misogyny, the the barbarity, the, the war booty, all this stuff. And and I, I was like, okay, these are my values. Because <laughs> I was like, I was so willing to be led. Um, and... And how did John get there? John got there... Be- um, so he was first... A, I would describe a Christian fundamentalist. He was part of the Orthodox Greek Church. Who he had been raised to actually hate Muslims because of the Ottoman Empire and what they had yeah. done. They had enslaved yeah. the Turk, uh, the Greeks, and then they they didn't do much good anyway. They were really into pedophilia and all those things and making it legal. And um, so I could understand why he didn't why Greeks don't like the Turks, but then they generalize and make all Muslims as if they're all Turks. Mm-hmm. And that's how he was, he was raised. But then something about his him feeling rejected by his father made him more inclined to research this monotheist religion. He also had, a, he had trouble understanding the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Because he was like, it's not monotheist. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense that, you know, the God impregnated Mary and then was born by born 
And then when he's dying, he's praying to God, saying, God, why have you like forsaken me? And, it, you know, it didn't. He, and then when he went to his priest, because he was a devout Christian, he wanted to be a priest. His parents weren't happy about that. They wanted him to be a lawyer or something. But um, so when he spoke to his priests about it, they were like, oh, no one really believes in the Trinity. We just go along with it. It doesn't make sense. You don't have to have... Wow. You don't have, it doesn't make rational sense. You just have to have that leap of faith. That wasn't good enough for John. He was also experimenting with terrible amounts, high amounts of LSD. Um, and I don't... I've never taken it, but he was like... He said that he would see things like light spirits in the cave. He was in Colorado Springs, and he was with his friends, and they could all see these spirits, these these beings of light. And they, and then later on, he thought, oh, they must have been jinns after reading mm-hmm. the Quran. It was just a chemical reaction mm-hmm. in his brain, but he didn't know because he was a young boy. Mm-hmm. So he becomes Muslim, you go online, you start talking about... Hijra and Jihad, two concepts that I want to eradicate <laughs> and, and in Islam. what are they? The first one is... Jihad is... Jihad. Yeah, and there's different levels. There's jihad of yourself, mm-hmm. where you just like deprive of yourself from being a human being and having human desires. Mm-hmm. And then the jihad, like um, defensive or offensive, it's the physical jihad. And these are things that we couldn't deny because they were actions of the Prophet Muhammad. And in the Quran, we're told, imitate him. We have to imitate Muhammad mm-hmm. because he's perfect. And we're told we're not allowed to question because only we're told you. There's a verse in the Quran. I haven't read the Quran since 2009, so mm. I, it's too traumatic for me. But it was like you do not question God; God questions you. And then other things like imitate Muhammad and imitate Abraham. Well, these two guys. Okay, Muhammad was a pedophile. Muhammad was, uh, you know, like from what my understanding of my readings. After I read um, Hugh Kennedy's uh, book called The Caliphate, and I could clearly see Muhammad had an inferiority complex to Jews and Christians because they had moved on from polytheism to monotheism. They were moving ahead. And so he wanted to catch on. I guess he felt some sort of shame about the polytheist ways of Arabia. Um, So, you know, this... These connections uh, didn't come until later. Um, I'm jumping from... It's all right. Yeah. It's all right. Um, but John never saw it. And then... Um, and so but you but would- like imitating Abraham. In, in Islam, the scriptures are... They've been changed from the Old Testament. And things like, uh, you know, you've got to imitate Abraham. He's the father. Abraham wanted to sacrifice his son. Um, and he was willing to do it until God stopped him. That meant we uh, Muslims will take that as meaning as we have to sacrifice our children for God to prove ourselves. Mm. But then there's like no human rights, mm. and children don't have human rights, but they don't believe in human rights mm-hmm. because it's not from God. So you guys hit it off. 
We hit it off at the beginning. I didn't really like him. I think he was a little bit autistic. <laughs> I didn't realize that I married him. He was a stranger. I married him three days after meeting him. I know, it sounds crazy. We, we wrote to each other. We emailed each other for two months. We were only 19 when we got married. And we, I understood that I never felt at home in England, not the way I do in America. And I never picked up on English values, probably because it's too tolerant to mm. bad ideas and mm. cultural abuse. But also just feeling like I'm not allowed because it's against my religion and I'll go to hell if I mm -hmm. act like them. Um, and so uh, I met John and we got on great and we were like, oh, we were dreaming about a caliphate. We were dreaming about jihad. We were, you know, it's just all in our imagination. And um, then I had children and <laughs> it was slightly different. And then it wasn't until I had my second child that I, so John went to prison for three years. He had been, he had, um, was charged for hacking into APAC's website because he worked for a company called Rackspace, which web hosts uh, a lot of pornography and APAC, their website. So it made him really angry because Islam is a, makes you angry about everything, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, um, so, he was he was actually talking to an undercover CIA agent from Canada and he didn't realize it. His friends warned him it's a trap, but he didn't listen to me. He didn't listen to his friends. So he ended up selling for this website, Jihad Unspun. He started doing IT work, programming for them and selling Osama bin Laden propaganda, which was the stupidest thing. I didn't really know about it. Um, and another thing in Islam is that there's two times you can lie. You can lie, you can, there's um, taqiyya, I think it's called. It's when you lie, when you, you don't want to say you're a Muslim to save your life. And you can lie to your wife. So my husband took advantage of that and he lied to me a lot. Because yeah. <laughs> he wow. didn't want me nagging him. Um, and so he didn't tell me everything, but he went to prison for almost three years at Seagoville in Texas. It was a um, it was a detention center. It was low security. During that time, I was able to breathe a little bit. I was allowed first time first alone. Time, first time alone. So I, he wasn't in charge. I didn't have a um, family or brothers yeah, or nothing. mom or dad. It's me and my child, my first son, and. I started unveiling slowly. Like I would wear the headscarf, but I put on a colorful one. I took off my veil because he made me wear it. Hated wearing the veil. You cannot breathe under the veil. It's like wearing a sack over your head. And I tell every man who who says that it's it's righteous and everything, I'm like, put a bag over your head, you know, and you'll know what it feels like. Um, but then they say, oh, our mothers don't say it feels like that. Their mothers yeah. are lying. Um, <laughs> Because it does feel like, especially when you're pregnant and it's hard it to breathe. To. And, and they're always making us pregnant. And they, they treat us like baby-making machines just so that they can subdue us. Because I had this problem that I always wanted to accept my independence and say, like, I want a job and I don't want to just be at home. And, you know, I want to mm -hmm. do what other 20-year-olds mm -hmm. do. Because I was in my 20s at the time. But he thought that was um, too feminist. Of a, uh, and too American. Yeah. 
So while he was in prison, I got to have some freedom and he came back and the night is crazy because I always say I was married to John for 10 years. The best time, the best years of my marriage was while he was in prison and while he was on probation for three years because I had a foot over him on his neck for the first time. It was before it was the other way around. And so if he stepped out of line, he knew I would report him to the pro- his probation officer, who I got along with really mm. well. It really helped having a relationship with the FBI um, for that duration because they could also see the control John had over me and they could see me trying to fight it. Mm-hmm. So, like... They were concerned. They understood there was some manipulation. There's manipulation going involved, and you know they they were caring. I don't care what anyone says about the FBI, but they saved my life. This government saved my life, and I owe them my loyalty and my love and my life, and so do my children. And I remind them of that every day because we would be in those camps in Syria right now or we would be dead if it wasn't for the U.S. having a heart, you know, like having sympathy on us. And, you know, of course, the FBI agents saw it and they were concerned for me, but there was only so much they could do. Um, and so... What year was this? Um, so it started, so they arrested him in 2006, and then he was off probation 2011. And the plan was, so in 2011, October 2011, he said, we have to leave. We're we're going, we're leaving. We plan to go to Libya first because I actually liked Gaddafi. (laughs) (laughs) He was good for his people, even though he was a socialist. But, you know, like he was better than all the other dictators of the region. There's a difference. Americans have a hard time hearing things like that. But we don't live in the Middle East. And uh, the Middle East is... um, is a warrior kind of area. They need the. They, they need autocracy. look for the strong. Yeah, they, they look need, for the strong men. They need autocracy because I don't think like a four year, like in America they look every four years mm-hmm. in their terms. It's very hard to look in the future far ahead. Like let's say China, where they look, mm-hmm. you know, like how is everything going to still function in forty years? Mm-hmm. And that's how the dictators in the Middle East think, very much so. So yeah, they're not they're not used to democracy, and they're not ready for democracy. And they are, like I lived in Egypt when um, I, I I moved to Egypt in 2011. John wanted us to move there. I didn't want to move. He said in 2008 there was a recession. He scared the living lives out of me. He said the country's going to have a civil war. We're going to be attacked. We're going to be the scapegoats because we're the Muslims. And being a stay-at-home mom, I wasn't allowed to leave the house without his permission. I didn't want to leave the house even because I hated wearing the hijab. Mm-hmm. It's hot. It's Texas, for crying out loud. Who wants to wear it? Mm-hmm. And also, I knew that no one was going to harass me. Like, it's not in, like, in England when I was growing up in England... You know, there's all this cat calling, all these drunk people, there's pubs everywhere, you get harassed constantly. So, and I, I used to see women in America jogging and freely and no one's harassing them. I was like, I don't have to be afraid of men here. They're going to respect me. They're, they're not going to care. Mm. And so that was an issue. I was like, John, I don't have to 
do this. You know, I don't have to be so uncomfortable and feel stigmatized and polarized when I go outside because no one, pe more people look at me when I'm covered than if I was uncovered. Then he didn't care. He thought I was becoming too Americanized. It, mm. He didn't like it. Um, he didn't like me questioning him. He wanted me to be more submissive. And it was hard for me when I had children to be that submissive because I knew I was putting my children at risk. So, but at the end of the day, I was financially dependent on him and I had no family. I didn't want to go back to my parents. My parents didn't want me. They never wanted me from, to begin with. Uh, I, I, always, I argue with my mom, like, why didn't you use contraception properly? You know, like, that, that's how bad our relationship is. Like, if you didn't want me, why didn't you take the right precautions? Instead, I was raised like a servant. I know I didn't. They didn't care if I went to school. I just had to make sure the house was clean, you know, and take care of my brother because my mom had to work and my brother was too young to go to school. So I'd skip days of school to look after my brother. All my sisters had to. My, even when my sisters went to university, they were working jobs to provide for my parents because that's the only reason why these that community from that very third world mentality region thinks of children like as if like okay so i can explain it like if people work on a farm they have children so that their children can work on the farm to help them so it was very much the mentality of we have children so that they can look after us and provide for us mm -hmm. so that's what i saw my my sisters go through and i saw how depressed they were and basically I wanted out and I thought and my parents weren't too religious then they they were just like culturally Muslim didn't really care um and so I got married to John they were happy with me marrying John because sadly because he's white a white convert American passport and from a military educated family so they were like, oh, if they have any problems, they'll take care of her. Because wow. they didn't want me. So, um, so you take off the hijab and... I take off the jahab, hijab 10 years later after I divorce John. Uh, after I leave John. No, but when he, when he is in prison, yeah. you start unveiling. Uh, yeah, the right? robes and the face veil. I kept okay. the colorful hijab that okay. he didn't like. Right. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, and but but when he gets out, you still want to raise your kids as warriors. Yeah. You still... I was still, proper, I was still indoctrinated because I, at that time, I was still... So in Islam, I don't know how it is with Christianity, but your thoughts. If you have a thought that contradicts the Quran or Muhammad, it's a sin. So it's really hard to... So see. do you know what the, the word Israel actually means? Yeah, to, 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 to wrestle, to wrestle, wrestle with God. Yeah. I want to be Jewish. Yeah. I'm trying. So it's, a, it's a long process. <laughs> I'm going to study it this year. Actually, I love Judaism very much. Um, so, so you, um, you, you actually go to recruit people. Don't I didn't you? recruit anybody. I was a stay at home mom looking, homeschooling my kids and that was hard for me like i was homeschooling my kids but so i i started doing this when i when john came out of prison he wanted a child i wasn't ready and this is my second child i got pregnant straight away 
had a baby, but then I came across this program called Your Baby Can Read and Your Child Can Read, and it's a great program. So I taught my, my, my second son, his name's Leif, I taught him how to read at nine months old. Mm. And by the age of two and a half, he could read English, French, Italian, Greek, and Arabic. Holy cow. And I was, that was like the most I had achieved in my life. Like, I was so proud of him, and he made me, like, the proudest mother in history. And I just said to John, he is not going on the front lines. Like, I would, like, get sleepless nights and nightmares about losing this precious child. And I was like, I want so much more for him. I want him to give to the world. I don't want him to destroy the world. And so my mentality completely changed. Also, he took me to Egypt thinking that if... if um, Tani goes to Egypt, she won't care about wearing the hijab because everyone wears the hijab. But in Cairo, it's only half-half. Half the women do and half the women don't. And, uh, and when I went to Egypt and I saw what a broken country it was, where like, uh, no, the government does not function whatsoever. And I was like, I don't want to be part of this. I would rather live in the enemy land of America, right. <laughs> you know, the satanic America, because... Life functions there. If there if there is corruption, it's not so blatantly in your face. And I couldn't stand all the bribery and all the. It's a disgusting country. Egypt is disgusting. You know, I'm very candid. But you know, I, I thought, oh my god, it's almost as bad as Bangladesh, where I came from. Um, and so he thought being in Egypt would change me, but it made me resent Arabs and Islam so much more. And I just, he, I wanted to get away. And I wanted, and so I would have John write to Homeland Security, asking them, please let my, please let my wife and her children back because she can't handle being here. But they would reply, no, because of your reputation, we, we won't. Right. So that was really hard for me. I couldn't go back to England. My family would have just told me to go to a homeless shelter. And um, so they were, I was stuck with him. And at this point, I was very suicidal. Um, I was trying to suffocate him. And it's, I, like, I, I, I used to tell him, with the abuse and just feeling so trapped and not having, like, any choices of my life, no, just, like, it was suffocating me and suff- like if anything my consciousness was suffocating because like things that i just hated things like child marriages and um and like the treatment of of the dimmi class the the christians and jews and how they would be demonized and and like i just i just I guess my Western upbringing in England made me feel like, well, they're still humans and they shouldn't be treated like that. And they wouldn't treat us like that. It was, it was, we were, my husband and I were always bumping, you know, hitting heads and then I'm like, and I always like felt like all these Muslim scholars in history, they're all men because they're the ones who have access to education. And they're talking about women's issues, which they have no understanding of. They don't know what it's like to have a child. They don't know what it's like to be a, a, a daughter-in-law or anything like that. And I, and that used to frustrate me. So I, I would encourage John to talk about women's rights online when he was in his speaking forums. He had a 
following online. It was called We Hear and We Obey. And and even that title comes from the Quran because there's a very anti-Semitic passage that says that the believers say we hear and we obey, but the Jews say we hear and we disobey. Mm. So, and you know, even in the first, the very first verse of the Quran, Al-Fatiha, we, uh, it says, you know, something on the lines of God do not curse us like the Jews and do not be angry at us with the Christians. And it, it, you have to use the explanation of the Quran to understand the passages. And you're saying that five times a day. So it makes you, it's just like this religion of fear. You're just like scared all the time and paranoid that there are jinns, <laughs> you know, yeah. these genies whispering in your ears. But really, that's your, your consciousness warning you. It's a siren. Mm-hmm. You have to suppress that, and it's really hard. So I would... Um, my point was, um, you know, so, so we were always bickering, and uh, he right. found me very difficult. He wanted a different wife. He wanted more wives. He wanted... So when, at what point, um, did he say... I want to go to Syria. Okay, so that was that was so he wanted to go to Syria during 2011 and I wasn't ready. I was like there's no way I'm going to go with my kids. I have all these health issues. How am I going to have access to an electric toothbrush or mm-hmm. you know like all my toiletries and all mm-hmm. these things like my lifestyle. I was selfish but I was like you know, I love Syria. It's holy land. The Levant in the in the uh, Islamic scripture, it's where the Messiah returns to kill the Jews, which just sounds horrible, but that's what it says. And then I was like, I just don't want to be part of it. I just want to be like, I want to be a grandmother one day. I want to see my children do well. I want to, you know, just live life, you know. Um, was Egypt a middle step for him, hoping yes. to get you to Syria? Well, well, Egypt was a place, since there was no government for one year, so, that, so 2011 happened, there was no government. There was anarchy in Egypt. No one obeyed any single law. There was, like, no traffic laws, nothing. It was completely broken. He loved it. He thrived in it. No one was watching him as far as he was concerned. He was free. So that's where he could ramp up his, his rhetoric of jihad and also mistreat me and know that I have no probation officer or anyone mm. to turn to. I did ask his parents for help, and I used to complain. They never believed me. They didn't want to believe that their son was a monster because, honestly, they didn't raise him to be that way. There's a little bit of misogyny, you know, like it's like old-school relationship, traditional between the father and the mother. Right. but. It wasn't, he, they just didn't want to believe me. I was the outsider at the end of the day. Um, so I, I was alone and I was dependent on him. Um, and then so Syria came along where when the coup happened, the military coup happened and Morsi went, and there's even stories about Morsi where there were like people from Europe coming over to us. They, they revered John because he had this website uh, called uh, the strangers info and it was it had laid out all the criteria for who should be a caliph because John was the one of the very few people that had studied this the caliphate 
and um, wanted to implement the caliphate, and he knew that it was it was necessary. And under Islamic scripture, it is necessary. You you can't have a body like you have a community of Muslims. We're a body, but you can't have a body that's decapitated. So you have to have a head. It's interesting because I know all of this, and yeah, <laughs> and uh, while you were probably here and then on the way to Egypt, that's what I was being mocked. Everyone said there was no caliphate, and you were talking to your sister about one 10 years before, 11 years before. Mm-hmm. It's always been a plan. It's always it's their agenda, and their agenda is world domination. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it is... You, you know, right now I always have this problem with some Muslims, and I'm not anti-Muslim. I feel like Muslims have all been manipulated equally as much as I have by this doctrine. We've been duped by this this ideology of hate, um, and it, it's from Muhammad, a, ma- a man who like suffered some sort of illness. I I was on the um, Pierce Morgan interview once, and I. I suggested that maybe he had epilepsy. Maybe that's what made him see these visions. You know, we don't know because back then they didn't even have science. You know, they, they were still into medieval mm-hmm. beliefs. You know, so what What you, can we really trust? If, if a man is walking on a street and collapses and has a dream and says he sees God and gives him a message, I'm not going to believe him. I don't know him. He could be a criminal. But back then, they did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so... It was tough. Um, so you go to Syria. Yeah. Uh, uh, unintentionally. He took me there. We weren't supposed to go to Syria. He wanted to go to Sudan to uh, study, to, to teach English and Arabic because he was fluent in Arabic, fluent in um, a lot of the ancient scriptures. He had memorized the first Arabic dictionary, the very first grammar dictionary. Yeah, and I didn't realize he was autistic at the time So because he didn't look it. So he like... He, he made me feel inferior because I just thought, oh, God, I must be like a complete bimbo because he memorizes books and I don't, mainly because I don't have the time. I've got to mm-hmm. focus on my kids' education. But um, so we wanted to go to Sudan, but we needed money to escape because at the time in Egypt during the coup, um, Sisi was arresting anyone, all the foreigners, and if you were non-Islamic, he was exp- he was saying charging people for being uh, spies from America or whatever. And then if you're Islamic, he was saying, oh, you must be Muslim Brotherhood or Al Qaeda, even if you're neither. And I was living in Nasser City right there when the helicopters came and were shooting at the, mm-hmm. the protesters. I was r- lived like around the corner was the mosque. Um, I forgot the name, something like Rabia, and it was burnt down with people in, the protesters were in there seeking sanctuary, and the CC government burnt the place down. And it was horrifying, you know. Like, mm-hmm. But other things disturbed me in Egypt while I was there. I used to see children going through garbage cans trying to pick things out, and I would just like, burst out crying. I couldn't handle it, and John thought it was embarrassing, but I, I was like, these children should be in school. Why are they picking up trash for their parents? I couldn't handle the whole... Col- it was a complete culture shock for me. I, it was unbearable. Mm-hmm. 
and and you know at the time john was like oh, i'm gonna get another wife i've had enough of you just like go back to your parents and i was like yeah like that's easy you know With three kids yeah and then and three kids with no reproductive rights there's no um in muslim scholars reject the idea of marital rape even though it's very real mm -hmm. i john knew very well i didn't want any more children with him and still he impregnated me and i didn't want it and um, with my fourth child and then he went and left me with you know in syria while five months pregnant just make it on my own you know because there's a verse in the Quran that says that your wives and your children are the biggest fitna, which fitna means like temptation, problem. Mm. Like, so he, he didn't want the responsibility of us. He won. Okay, so he becomes a commander in ISIS. He kind of follows in his father and his grandfather's footsteps, except with the enemy of the United States. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to follow, he was like, he had some sort of pride. He was like, my grandfather was fought in World War II. My, my dad was in the Air Force. I'm going to be in ISIS. Well, I used to say to him, and guess what's going to happen to your kids? Like, because I'd learned the history of the Russians and the Chechnyans. Um, Chechen fathers would abandon their fathers and the children would join the Russian army. Now my kids want to go to West Point and join the military which I pray to God that they will, you know, because they really want to make their grandfather proud and they want to prove to America that, you know, that their loyalty is for here. And I, So tell me about your time in as an ISIS bride. I mean, you were there. He was a commander. Okay, so what to make it clear, I left ISIS. I, 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 so I left Syria six months before ISIS declared a caliphate. Okay, Ames, I am the luckiest mother and wife who got out in time because I could have been one of those women trapped in those prison camps in the Kurds with the Kurds. I'm the only one who has made it back to America de-radicalized and not had to face prison mm -hmm. or be in those camps or be dead. Mm. But you, there was a chance you were going to be dead trying to get out. Yeah. Tell me how you got I out. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> like I wasn't prepared. It was entering Syria. So like first, it's a long story how we got there. We were never planning to go to Turkey, but we needed finances to leave Egypt, but the only people, we, the only person we could get money from was his dad. And his dad was like, no way, I'm not sending you to Sudan. That's a, a crazy idea. I didn't want to go to Sudan, it's too hot. <laughs> and the people are lazy because it's hot. And then, he, and then John was like, Philippines. And I was like, the Philippines is fine. But I looked at pictures and I was like, I don't want to live on stilts with like snakes underneath. And I was like, I want a real home. And so I, I, want, I wanted to go to Greece. But then John's parents were like, no, you can't go to Greece with a hijab. They're going to think you're a refugee or a gypsy and they're not going to treat you right. I was like, well, I'm happy to take my hijab off. But John wouldn't allow it. Mm -hmm. uh, seriously, I did not want to wear the hijab for so many years. And I was locked in my house because of that. Um... And so 
So Turkey was the compromise. So we were in Turkey, Istanbul. I was so happy. I was like, oh, it's clean. It's not filthy like Egypt. And it's like more like Europe. And, mm-hmm. and, and I was so happy. But he was like, it's too expensive. And I'm not going to learn Turkish. We've got to go to the eastern side where they speak Arabic. And I was like, okay, fair enough. How bad can it be? I've never been there. I went there. I was horrified. It was full of ref- Syrian refugees. And I was really panicking and hormonal from being pregnant and I was freaking out every moment and um he was like uh, we we were waiting for money to be transferred and the money didn't come and then we ended up getting on a bus because we were sleeping on the streets because we couldn't get a hotel room all the hotels the, the Syrians were given priority yeah, yeah. over hotel rooms so the only place we could stay that night in Gaziantep was a Syrian hostel, and I refused to stay there because I was like, ah, like I have an, I have, my kids and I are allergic to bud, bed bugs, like really badly, and and it was filthy. And I said I'd rather sleep on the streets with my kids, pregnant, and we were there at two o'clock in the morning on the streets, and a bus came to the Syrian hostel for the refugees and let them off to go stay there. John went and spoke to them. I didn't speak because I wasn't allowed to have interaction with men. And so, yeah, so like 10 years of having no no interaction with the opposite sex, which is difficult, right? And so he went to talk to them. He said, get on the bus, because he knew we were exhausted. And I was like, oh, I can sit down and sleep. I didn't know where the bus was going. And it ended up driving to the checkpoint of the Turkish-Syrian border. And there we got out and I was like having a meltdown. And John was like, don't make, you know, women aren't allowed to, we're not even allowed to speak loudly Mm -hmm. in public. We have to keep quiet. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's only two weeks, it's only two weeks. I reassure you, it's only because we don't have the money. Um, and then he said, as soon as we get the money, we'll go back to Turkey, because that was the plan to stay in Turkey and help the rebels from Turkey, because there's a lot of that happening. There was no mention of the caliphate at the time, because at the time I didn't really even thought, I didn't think I'd see a caliphate in my lifetime, but I thought maybe my children mm-hmm. would. Um, and then, so we ended up going into Syria. The, the Turkish border guards didn't care. They didn't question me. They didn't question my friend, who's an Irish citizen, um, because well, women, they didn't want to mm-hmm. talk to us. John Lai, uh, so at this checkpoint, there are Tunisian foreign fighters. And, you know, you can see them. They've got the big beards. They've got the Kalashnikovs. Mm-hmm. They got, and, and they just said to John, just say your, your passport's on the other side. And he did. And he passed. They, they didn't, didn't care. They let us through. As soon as we got there, then the the militia, the Islamic militia, questioned John. They said, who do you know? He gave them some references. They called up the references. The people said, take care of this guy. Take care of his family. Mm-hmm. So they put us into a an abandoned general's home. It was like a mansion. But it, the windows had been shattered. There were gun bullets. There was holes. The, the water tank at the top had been broken. We had no electricity. It was really hard. Um, 
So I was there for, like, they kept moving us. But it was a military base, so it's where the militia would come and have meetings. So we could only stay there for a week. And then so for, I was only in Syria for three weeks. And John didn't have a cell phone at this time that worked in the Syrian mm-hmm. location. He had a cell phone that worked in Turkey, but it didn't work in Syria. So we kept moving. And then as soon as John got a cell phone, I called his mother and I said, John did exactly what he said he wouldn't do because he promised me and he promised his mother he would not take us to Syria. He said we were going to stay in Antioch in Turkey. Mm-hmm. But he ended up taking us to Gaziantep and from there to Syria. And I called her up and I said, please call the FBI. Tell them that I'm so desperate to get out of here because if we don't, we're not going to just have one terrorist, American terrorist, but he's going to make my children into terrorists. And I didn't want to see that. That was the biggest problem to me and John is that I really wanted my children to have a fulfilling life. I wanted them to live and be educated. And all he cared about was an Islamic primitive medieval education. Mm. And it was a huge problem. And, you know, and, and the differences arose from, strangely, from the internet. So like using Facebook. I was, um, so prior to Syria, we were in Egypt and we would speak in political forums with Jews, Christians, atheists, and, and John's Muslim, and we would debate. And I loved, I these debates and it made me realize how much i love americans too because their principle i fell in love with americans i fell in love with john even his american side but i loved american people and um so he you know this opened my mind a lot like just hearing their arguments and the debates and not and feeling more of an affiliation to them than i did with the muslims you know, the muslims were so nihilistic and the muslims didn't care about things like I cared about saving the bees. I cared <laughs> about, like, you know, pollution and things. And for them, they were like, it's the end of the world. Jesus will take care of it. God will take care of it, whatever. And I was like, well, you know, we can help, you know, with these problems. But we just had different priorities altogether because at the end of the day, their goal was to die, to live an eternal life in paradise because to them, and my husband, my ex-husband, this life is a dream. It's not real. And then so the hadith say, when you go to paradise, you look back at this world and it's just like a dream. Mm-hmm. Well, a dreams, dreams are insignificant. Mm-hmm. And so that's how lightly they, they take this world. And that's how much they depreciate life. They don't value human life. Not for their families, not for their children. And that's why it's so poisonous. When you came across the border to leave Mm -hmm. Syria, how did you get back across? Um, so that was really rough. I was five, five and a half months pregnant. Um, so I'd waited three weeks until the fighting had stopped so that I, the borders would be open for me to cross. And the, the Syrians were like, Malish, Malish, I would say, like, or well, that's the Egyptian, they're like, this is no problem, it's easy. It, they, I thought, 
I was under the impression it would be as easy to leave as it was to get in because mm-hmm. the Turkish border guards didn't care. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. Uh, Syrian, the Syrian guards were on these posts shooting at us. We were running. I didn't. I was so scared. My kids were frightened. We had to run through barbed wire. We had to get onto a human trafficking truck. John oh paid gosh. the human trafficker. He crossed the border with us to Turkey. He could have come with us, but he wouldn't. He said, "I'm not going to." I begged him on my hands and knees while pregnant, crying, "Please take me to the airport," because I'd never been alone in my life. I said, please take me to the airport. And he said, no, because you've reported me to the FBI and they're going to arrest me. So it's your fault. So he wouldn't take me. So he left me with this human trafficker that left me. He drove up, you know, took John's money, drove up, left me in the middle of nowhere in Turkey. I didn't know. I didn't speak Turkish. It was a dirt road with just grass and fields and hills. And I was sobbing. Way to I go. didn't know which way, left, right, anywhere. Everybody else in the truck just, they just, they scattered like cockroaches in their own ways. And I was just there alone, crying and sobbing. My poor kids had to see me. My kids were just carrying the luggage and I was pushing a stroller. And, and then a guy came on a motorcycle and saw us, how distressed we were. And he said, he can speak Arabic, he can speak English, he spoke Turkish. And the only word that we could get across was mektab or like station i need to get to the bus station so he said i will take one child at a time a luggage and take them to the station and i, I was so Holy afraid God. yeah i bet because they have organ trafficking drug trafficking sex trafficking in that region it's so dominant even in egypt it's so prevalent kids go missing all the time so what made you decide to take him up on the offer i put my trust in god i didn't have any other option so i didn't know what else to do so he went he took my eight-year-old and a luggage bag and then he came back then he took my four-year-old and a luggage bag and went back and as a muslim woman I wouldn't have sat near him on a bicycle motorbike because mm-hmm. it's like too close proximity. So I walked with a stroller and I had two rack sacks, pregnant, six months pregnant, and dehydrated. I forgot to bring water with me. And I get criticized for that, not bringing drinking water. But I was like, my hands were full. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I thought John had water. He thought I had water. We didn't have water. My kids had infections. I had an infection. We were sick. But this man was very good, and he took my kids to the bus station. He came, and he drove slowly while I pushed up the hill. It was like a two-mile walk, and then I got to the bus station. I saw my kids were safe. And then John had arranged another trafficker, Syrian trafficker, who I could tell was a real radical. He had shaven his beard and everything, but he wouldn't look at me. He looked at me with disgust because I wasn't covered up. My mm-hmm. face wasn't covered, my body, you know, I didn't wear the robes like his family does. So I, he wouldn't even talk to me, like, mm-hmm. like I was not even human, like just something mm-hmm. disgusting. So I was like, okay, I've got to work with him regardless. And then him and his family, I, I gave them 60 euros. They drove me to Gaziantep Airport. And from Gaziantep Airport, John's father had um, booked tickets for us to go to Istanbul. 
And then by the time I got to Istanbul, I had to go to the emergency room because I nearly had a miscarriage. Jeez. And um, I had to leave my kids in a hotel room alone, which really frightened me because that's like three kids. I got an eight-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-and-a-half-year-old staying in a hotel oh room gosh. by themselves. While you're having a baby. While I'm getting like fluids put into me because I was so dehydrated and scared. And the, and the Turkish, the ER people were horrible. They just they didn't show an ounce of kindness to me. And I was, and they were wondering why I was mad at them. <laughs> I know. So I like at one point I was just so mad. I was like, I was tearing out the IV and I said, just I'm gonna go back home. I need to go to my kids. Went home, I went back to the hotel, found my kids asleep, sound asleep. This was like six hours I was in the hospital. And then they were sleeping and there was like this um, uh, a male hotel guy sitting there. But I kind of freaked out because I would have preferred a woman to be watching my kids. I got paranoia, but I was like, mm-hmm. I know what happens in hotels. And I know what kind of business they run. And it's not it's shady sometimes. But, you know... He, he didn't harm my kids, but I was a very overprotective mother. And so he left. Then my mother, my former mother-in-law, John's mother, called my family in England and said, please help Tanya. She's in, hospi- she's in the hotel. She had to leave. John abandoned them. And my family said no. So I was like, no, we're not going to help her. And then she basically had to beg. And so one of my sisters, my parents told one of my sisters, please go help. So she came, picked us up from Turkey, because they're all familiar with Turkey. They're mm-hmm, Muslims. Mm-hmm. They go all over the Muslim world. They're right, fine right, with right. it. They won't come to America, though, because they're anti-American. But they, they picked us up from Turkey. I was in a wheelchair. And the American government said, we can't save you from Syria, but if you cross the border and come to the UK, you have to come back to the U.S. within two weeks because we have to record everything you saw in those two weeks. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm more than happy to help you. <laughs> like, America saved me. It goes back to before I went to Syria where I was a stay-at-home mom. I was, you know, homeschooling my kids, which is really tough work. And I would watch things like Fox News Business. I would listen to... Um, and Judge Andrew Napolitano, mm. I would listen to Ron Paul. They taught me about the U.S. Constitution. This was enlightenment for me. It, it was... You said that when you read the Declaration of Independence, you had never read anything like that before. Yeah. Freedom of thought, freedom of thinking, rights for humans. It's incredible. Like, as Muslims, we have to think the word of God is perfect. We're not allowed to, to disagree. But I was like, hang on, this is a value system that is so much more humane, so much more merciful to human nature than a 14th century angry Arab god and who's also misogynist and homophobic and hates everyone who's not a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I was like, I, I found something more beautiful. And... And, you know, of course, John didn't appreciate that. But I, I fell for it. I fell in love. I was like, this is what I need. This is what my children need. And this you, is what the world needs. You've read Thomas Paine. I love Thomas Paine. Yeah, I read The Age of Reason. The Age of Reason. Rights of Man. 
Uh, I got uh, some you, notes. So like, like what did you? Was, what did you think of that? Okay, so I, I went to Facebook headquarters once, and I had to go discuss with them their responsibility for spreading terrorism with the groups, mm-hmm. the foreign groups. But that, that was why I went there with the group, the Parents for Peace. But I had to thank them because I was like, that, I read a meme and the meme said, um, a cruel God, I, I don't have my bag here, but I had a notes, but it was something like, uh, the belief of a cruel God makes a cruel man. Mm-hmm. And when I read that meme, it's so powerful, a small meme, it struck me so hard. And I was like, no one has expressed what I was, I've been feeling so clearly because I knew it and I felt it every single day. And he, he had the freedom as a non-Muslim to put it into words because it's blasphemy to say such a thing in Islam. But it was true. And, and I remember saying to John, John, Thomas Paine says all these amazing quotes. And, you know, I, I didn't ra- wasn't raised with the American founding fathers or anything. So I was like... This is so incredible. He said, he said, yeah, I read Thomas Paine while I was in prison. He's good, but you stay away from him. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. But once John was out the picture, I could read every material I wanted. Um, you know, I started studying humanism. I started uh, just reading everything I could, like philosophy, psychology. I wanted to make sense of why my life was the way it was, like, because even I was like, this is too crazy. <laughs> I need to make sense of it. So um, are you, you're not Muslim. No way. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to be a slave. And that's what I got to say. Islam is enslavement. It's enslavement for men, women, children, minorities. And if you're not a slave, you're going to be killed. I know it sounds Islamophobic, but it's legitimate. It's a legitimate reason. Even the Crusades, like the Muslims and everybody wants to criticize the Crusades or how they attacked the Middle East and everything. But if you look at the secular history of it, the Muslims were invading Europe and killing far more Europeans than, than in comparison to what happened the, to the Crusades. The Crusades was like a very minor you know, battle compared to the invasion of the Ottomans and the Arabs of Europe that had been going on for so long. So, like, I was, without John, without my husband being my God, telling me what I can and can't think, I could see the picture clearly. And it was enlightening. And So, <clears throat> you probably think that Thomas Paine... Atheist? No, he's a deist. Isn't he? He believes in God. Uh, yeah. yeah. I just want to show you something. Okay. Thomas Paine was uh, known as, um, he went over to help free the people of France. And he got into a real bad argument with George Washington and Aww. Benjamin Franklin, who was like his father. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he said, you don't you see it? It's, it's liberty. Um, but when he got over there, they started beheading everybody. Yeah. And it turned into uh, just a bloodbath. And the reason why, he said this, he started to get into trouble with them because he said, wait, this didn't happen in America. 
But what he noticed was they were rejecting God. And that's when he wrote um, his books that you have read. Uh, And he was trying to explain to the French, but the Americans read that and said, you're rejecting God. Most people leave the story at that, and most scholars leave it at that. This is Thomas Paine's letter to Benjamin Franklin. Um, that's his. Actual, I love Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> this is that's his letter, and in it he talks about how I'm trying. To, I was trying to express to the French who have lived through horrible, horrible religious persecution. Um, where their churches were just organs of the state and it wasn't about God. Mm. And I was trying to tell them that they need God, but I understand how they feel about the church. This is beautiful. This is amazing. And my handwriting is very similar. It is it? <laughs> it is. I'm not a writer, but I'm good at handwriting. <laughs> I'll show you one more, one more, one more oh thing. Oh my goodness. So this is the actual document that Thomas Paine wrote to Benjamin Franklin? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? It is. And it goes on page. I know. I wish I could read all of it. Yeah. Well, I'll leave it with you for a few and you can read it. This I thought you might uh, enjoy as well. This is the Koran. But this is the first American printing of it. Oh. Uh, This was... Please say it's edited. It's not edited. Oh, well, I, I'm going to have to go in there and scrap out every misogyny, homophobic, every... <laughs> well, actually, I think what's interesting is this came... Thomas Jefferson said when they started the Barbary Pirates, uh, the war with Barbary Pirates. It was our first war, and it was a war against Islam. And, um, and Thomas Jefferson, he fought it, and, uh, but he didn't... S- snuff it out and so he said everyone in america should read the quran and so they printed the entire quran he didn't edit he didn't take it out of context but what he did do is they added to the reader and it says here that you have to read this and you will not believe the absurdities of how many People in the world believe that this stuff is true. And it comes with a warning that if we don't understand this book, they will never stop. This is a book of jihad. It's a manual for jihad. And you can interpret it to believe anything you want. Like you can, like the apologists can interpret it however they want. But Muhammad took it literally, the book. He didn't interpret it. He heard and he obeyed. And, it, and every ruling of jihad is in that book. It's a dangerous book. And, but it can easily be refuted too because it's, it's inhumane. It doesn't apply to modern times. It, it can't be changed. And it's just unscientific even. <laughs> like Muhammad, for example, he was a merchant. I think the closest he knew to... Like the embryology was goats killing, you know, goats having miscarriages or whatever, mm-hmm. because he talks about um, the fetus. And he talks about how there's not a heartbeat until like three weeks 
into the the process and so you can in islam you can have an abortion within before 21 days and um and i know in the bible it says life it starts at contraception but science says it's mm-hmm. it's with the zygote and then it becomes mm-hmm. a baby but i i like it, that those are the things that fascinate people also like another unscientific thing that Muhammad said is that he said that sperm comes from the ribs of man then what does what is the scrotum for he, ju- he was a merchant who was illiterate he didn't know science so tell me uh, how come you're not dead uh, I don't think anyone cares <laughs> killing me <laughs> thank goodness they got bigger fish to fry but uh, the, you know I mean I, I I've I've sat with Ian Hersey Alley I don't know mm. if you know her yeah, I admire her uh incredibly brave and uh so intelligent yeah and she had a security person right off the side of the camera um how come i mean you're you have said several things that said the Quran is a terrible book yeah you've said several things that would mark you yeah is your is your ex-husband john is he dead he's probably dead you died in 2017 in the battle of mayadeen it was the Russians and the Syrian government attacking an entire city. They blew it up. And, of course, there's no evidence. They can't, they can't, so no one can investigate and find the, the DNA because right. the war's going on. Right. Until the war's over, then they can go to these areas right. and find the proof. Are you close to his family? I love his mother. His mother was a better mother to me than my own mother. And I know that's because she's got a very good Christian heart. Uh, my children are Christian, Orthodox Christian. Um, I, I, I love his mother. We're very close. His dad is a very staunch military type of man, uh, very proud. He has every reason to be proud. He, he did everything by the book. He was very successful, you know, quarterback in West Point. He, he's a doctor. I mean, I can, un- but we don't, we're from two different worlds. Mm-hmm. It's almost like I would ha- never have anything to do with them if it wasn't for John and my mm-hmm. children. So we don't get along too well, but he loves my children. And, and that's, I mean, I can ask for more, you know, like my children are privileged. I don't always say the right thing. Like sometimes I flip out and say, well, at least you're not in an orphanage or at least you're not in a boarding school. But those aren't the right things I say, I should say. But they are loved. You know, most people in the world would die for to be in their place. And they know that. Let's drive you nuts hearing people talk about America. Because... Yeah, I hate uh, like a lot of things that I hear, like the inequality. I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, like, and the racism, people talk about America being racist. I'm like, you have, this, is, this isn't true. America's not racist. I've lived in Europe, and they are very hostile. Like, I had to live with racism most of my life there. And then when I came to America, I was like, people are so nice. And, you know, a little bit we of... We have our problems, yeah, but I mean, everybody does. His, the history is bad everywhere in the world. There's always genocide. There's always this competition of survival of the fittest and who has the stronger weapons. And mm-hmm. I get it. Even with Israel, I understand now, you know, a much better picture. Now that I know Jewish people, I understand. I'm studying the history of Israel. 
what Israel has done, you know, the, the Jewish people have done for that land, and they had nowhere else to go. And it wasn't even developed by the Palestinians. The Palestinians weren't even a thing until like like the, the Philistines or the Palestinians in the Bible, they're not the same people that live today. These are, the Palestinians are, you know, they probably have, uh, in you know, hereditary G, uh, Jewish lines in their family, but a lot of them are Egyptians, you know, and they never made Israel a democratic country the way that it is. It was empty land. It was just desert with nomads. And these nomads are the most primitive human beings you can imagine. They don't have any concept of science or recycling or, or human <laughs> rights. They don't know. They just All they know is their poetry, songs, and drinking tea. And I sound crass. I'm sorry. That's all right. <laughs> but That's it's right. from my experience. I've seen it all. And I know Israel helps the Palestinians, and the Palestinians do not. They don't shed light on it. They just completely, it's all like they're the victim. And that's the problem with Muslims. They always play the victim. Well, how about thinking about for 1400 years, how many people were victimized by jihad? Millions of people's lives were ruined. You know, you got genocides from every part, you know, from anyone who wasn't Muslim. You surrender or you die or you pay the jizya and you're humiliated. What are you going to do now? Well, for the last four years, I've been really trying hard to work with NGOs to get into prison systems to do a de-radicalization program. I want a mandatory education for these people. I want them to learn exactly what I learned. I, I, I you know, uh, what did I study? I, I studied uh, American history. I studied human rights. I studied things like YouTube channels, like crash course history and science. Mm -hmm. So educational and it's free. I did Coursera courses. Are you familiar with Coursera? Mm -hmm. So they're like Ivy League schools who do classes online. Mm -hmm. You can pay for certificates or you don't mm -hmm. pay, it's free. But since it's free, these things taught me how to be a good citizen. Like, you know, it reprogrammed me. I needed it, but I was open to it. I wanted to relearn because I wanted to survive. I mean, I wanted my children to survive. One thing I cannot understand about the Muslims who are still stuck in that mentality is that they really don't believe this life is real. They're delusional. They're living in a fantasy world. And I was there once. We need to break that free from them because that's, that's an oppression on them even. They're, even they've been exploited. But as a, you know, they've been exploited and then they spread tyranny and then they think they're the victims. I've, I just want them like okay if we imprison them and they're or in ho under house arrest they need education because education is enlightenment and they will get that you know if we do comparative studies of different value systems it's really important if i can learn and i'm telling you i was never a very bright child if i can learn they can learn but not enough people support it because they don't have the heart to to invest in in helping these extremists, even like neo neo Nazi, you know, neo Nazis. Is there a and, lot of familiarity? Antifa and is there a, is there a so much in common? So much in common. So much in common, and the main point is using violence to achieve a political means. If we could just teach them, look, you don't have to turn to violence. 
you have to do it through the political process, through process. It takes patience. It takes teamwork. But you don't have to kill people for it. If you have to kill people for an idea, guess what? It's a bad idea. You know, and they need logic. But when when they're in this collective mindset and they're like trapped in these camps and things, they're not hearing my voice. They're hearing only each other's voices. And right now in these camps, the Kurdish camps, the extremist women are bullying and killing women who don't want to be affiliated with ISIS. The 14-year-old girl got killed the other week because she didn't want to cover. Like she just didn't want to wear her face veil. And women who talk to reporters, they get poop thrown at them. Their children are beaten up. I just can't understand. I understand there's 70,000 people in a camp. We have lots of money to go to war, but we need to go into these camps and separate the dangerous people from the harmless people. It's really important. These harmful mothers who are still brainwashed by ISIS are child abusers. They are, they are not good. For, they they have, should not have rights to their children. And I know it's cruel to separate your children, but even I needed separation from my, from my own children to grow as a human being. I needed an identity. I needed to re-educate and reprogram myself to survive for my children's sake. And it's, it's the only way. Like, I... It, I, it's just like there's not enough people who care about those people in the camps because it's far away. But if we don't do something about it, the Kurds are suffering. They can't cope with the, the, the amount of people. They don't have the resources to feed these people even, and they're going to let them go. And ISIS are waiting. Yeah. ISIS will are determined to come back. Yeah. And I just want to end it. I just... If I feel like if we could just educate these people and make these people see that Islam is something of the past and it should stay in the past. But we have enlightened, you know, there was a stage of enlightenment thinkers, which was the best thing ever. And now we have things like the, uh, you know, the um, uh, scientific methodology. We understand how that works. We, we've grown. We, we live in the age of knowledge and they're in the dark ages. Well, we've got to get them out, and especially the American children. There are American children there. They don't deserve to be there. Tanya? Yes, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 